Greetings all and welcome to Margin Call, the podcast and editorial meeting for Quest On Media. I'm your host, Russell Morse. Uh, on this week's episode, we've we've been actually been planning a conversation about Portland, Portland, Oregon, uh, for some time because of the conflict and the chaos there. Uh, and we weren't sure how to have that conversation. It felt like a very important story for a lot of different reasons. Um, just a very, very brief uh, encapsulation of the timeline, um, just so we have some framing here. But obviously, um, after the killing of George Floyd, uh, back around Memorial Day in May and June, you know, there were protests in American cities all over the country. And we saw what that looked like and we saw what it led to. And in most American cities that has since calmed down and, and led to some conversations about revisiting the role of police in those communities, um, even in Minneapolis and St. Paul, where George Floyd was killed, you know, those protests have calmed down and now they're having conversations about what to do next. Um, but in Portland, Oregon, which uh, a, a beautiful city in America's Northwest that most people know from the Fred Armisen show, <laughs> Portlandia, if you've never been there, it is a very charming and beautiful place, very progressive um, and known for, you know, as as our guest today has said, I think breweries and bikes, you know, it's um it's, it's a beautiful place. Uh, but in the months since George Floyd's killing, I think it's safe to say it has been a very, very chaotic environment. Um, you know, the president has sent in federal agents from, my goodness, uh, you know, uh, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, Coast Guard, pretty much every federal agency that had people laying around. The president has sent them in uh, to Portland, uh, as he says, to, quote, restore order. And that has actually led to more chaos, which are clashes with protesters and clashes with federal agents. We've heard reports of protesters and people being taken off the street and put into vans by people in unmarked clothing. Uh, it feels very draconian. It feels very, dare I say it, even Soviet or despotic. Um, and then I think in the, in recent weeks, uh, there have been further developments, which is the arrival of, you know, conservative identified, some of them Trump supporters, people who have come to, uh, Portland, you know, I, in, in order to be present, let's say, I, I don't want to implicate anybody here because there are so many players, um, but there have been clashes between protesters in Portland who are liberal minded, progressive minded people um, politically, very generally speaking, and uh people who identify as conservative or Trump supporters who have come. So there's kind of like a triangulation of conflict. And, and that has led to considerable chaos and I think uh, justifiable concern all over the country. So, you know, we thought about how to have this conversation. There, there's obviously a political conversation to be had about you know, what is free speech? What does protest look like? What should it look like? Um, who's in the right? Who's in the wrong? Um, but that conversation, you know, the more I read and listen and, and watch about Portland and what's happening in Portland, that conversation is happening. And I, I, I don't think it's happening in a way that's necessarily that productive because there are people who are like, this group of people is right and this group of people is wrong. And it just leads to kind of more entrenched loyalties and arguments. Uh, and not that that conversation isn't important, but uh, we really felt like it would be much more valuable to speak to someone who lives in Portland, uh, who is not uh, out in the street protesting, but is very, very close to where all of this chaos is taking place about what it's like to be a person who lives in Portland, uh, which has now become you know, a battleground, a war zone, I think some people have called it. Um, and what is that? How does that change your political sensibilities? How does that, does that affect your ability 
um, to just function in your normal life. And, you know, that is our mission here at Margin Call is, is it's much more interesting to hear from people who are experiencing something in real time, who don't have a political agenda, uh, than to hear from people who have sound bites and talking points about why this side is right or that side is wrong. So with that said, that's my long throat clearing, uh, introduction for today's show. Uh, and now I can introduce our guest, Scott, who, uh, lives in Portland, actually very close uh, to where a lot of this is happening. Welcome, Scott, and thank you for being here. Thank you. Um, yeah. I will give you a lot of credit. You actually played it much nicer and safer with the politics than I even am <laughs> planning to do. So uh, I do appreciate that we're yeah. going to you're going to be able to rein me back with some of that because I think, yeah, you're right. The, the subject is important to just you know, see what life is like here right now yeah. to so, talk about the realities, I think. And yeah. I, we on this show try to walk a fine line and leave room for any kind of political voice, to be honest. You know, I don't like shutting people down no matter how much I agree with them. And I think when you do try to shut people down or define things in a narrow way, you kind of you lose people. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. I, I don't want to. Yeah, I don't want to send anybody to one side or the other. Because um, yeah. quite frankly, there's enough infighting on both sides anyway. Yeah. So. <laughs> You know, yeah, <laughs> that's going to be part of the conversation. I'm sure it's going to slip in. But yeah. And I think, you know, and it's a credit to you, too, Scott, when we had a conversation about you coming on the show, you said, like, listen, like, I I'm not interested in a political conversation about this. I'm much more interested in talking about the realities of being a person who lives here, who has their own political sensibility that is now challenged just by the difficulties of living in a place that is so chaotic. You know, and I I appreciated that sentiment. And I'm mostly just kind of paraphrasing and echoing it in my intro and pretending as if it were my own idea. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Uh, you know, it's uh, just to say off the bat, um, to put it out there, we, when we were conversing before, I hadn't told you, but, uh, you know, I, when my lease is up, I'm out of here. I love where I live. But after this, it's like, I just, I'd rather not be around. You know, my plan is actually to leave the city the day before, not move out, but the day before the election and be away for at least a week. Because I don't want to be in my apartment building exactly where I live, no matter what end happens with the election. It's just too much of a hotbed here. And quite frankly, I mean, we might have been, depending on where our city was going, uh, a couple days away from a, a Chaz here earlier in the protests. So, yeah. you know. I don't want to be here if something weird like that happens. So yeah. I think I'll be visiting my brother because I don't know where else I can go in quarantine. So yeah. we'll see how it goes. But I yeah, mean, it's an interesting point. It's a sad point, as you say, like, uh, you know, based on our conversations, as I say, I have a good opinion of Portland. I like that. I've only ever been a visitor, but, you know, it sounds like you had a good life there and it's a place that you like. And it is very interesting to me that a person you know, in an American city is having to leave where they would want, where their life is um, because there is so much violence and chaos in the streets. That is something that we associate with refugees. That's something that we associate with people in other parts of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in fact, that goes right into uh, um, little Beirut. Uh, as I mentioned real briefly, like I said, you know, I'm not in Beirut. This is still America as tough as everything I've seen in the video and all that that's been going on. It's not like back in the late seventies when the Shah took over in Iran or something like that. We're not in that position. And I think it's one of those things where it's a, a bit strange that it has gotten this crazy. Um, 
when it seems like we're actually much more stable than that. So, I, I mean, I don't know if I'm yeah. uh, saying too, no, too much about you. it. Like, I, I don't want to be hyperbolic. I don't want to come on the air and yeah. say, like, you know, Port- Portland is burning and people are fleeing, you know, because that's not the reality. We still have, yeah. we still have a level of stability as Americans where, you know, this our chaos looks a lot different than some of the chaos around the world. So I don't, again, yeah, I don't want to overstate it. But yeah. I will say in and this is how I, I did want to kind of frame the conversation a little bit, because part of the reason you're such a good guest is uh, proximity, your home. Right. And yes. I just want to let our listeners know that we were planning to record this episode last night and our usual time that we record on Sunday evenings. Um, and Scott contacted me and said, hey, you know, I, I don't. I don't want to disrupt things. I, I want to be able to record, but usually around this time of night is when they start firing tear gas and it would be hard for me to be in my apartment with the windows closed with like tear gas. And that was uh, eye opening for me, right? That, that was, and I, it speaks to your proximity to the chaos. So maybe you can tell me and our listeners a little bit about like, where are you in Portland and how close is that to what's happening in the street and what is happening in the street? Yeah. As I get uh, towards the end of this, tangent i feel bad russell because i probably didn't write my email very well because it's not exactly as you said but i will get to say how it is um right off the bat i live um in the only apartment building in portland that's actually near the the major buildings the it goes the federal building next block over is the portland police bureau and corrections facility just the in town one and then the irs building and then me across the street from those three buildings they're all little square parks and that's where a lot of the action has been happening so all around us are financial buildings banking a lot of law it's just there's no other places where people live so essentially um, from what I can tell, I'm having an existence here that only about a hundred people are getting. Our, our place is probably about 500 people, but at my my height level of my apartment and how tear gas can get in and things like that, but also the view from my balcony and what I can see happen. I'm just in a very very unique position. And it's very frustrating because when you see like the national news, you find out what's getting out and what's not getting out. Unfortunately, you know, that that has become like one of the hardest parts of this. But the strangest part about this existence for me is that I've actually been trained here when there is a march through town by the Proud Boys or a drive through by Patriot Prayer or Antifa has a lot of rallies here. Even when no one else is in town, it's all happening kitty corner to my building. So that one park right across from the police station is where they always hold them because then the police can come out because generally Antifa brings weapons no matter what's going on. And then if the Proud Boys or Patriot Prayer come through, well, of course there's going to be weapons involved because Antifa is going to show up. There really isn't a conservative presence here. So when folks like that come into town, I won't play nice. I think they're looking to fight. <laughs> you know, I think it's just kind of how it goes. So I have actually seen some of the fights start to where like tear gas canisters will happen and things like that from my very balcony. And um, as an example of how strange it is, I have a friend who's about four floors up that has totally different stories than me because he's holding to the narrative rather than looking out his door. Well, when he looks out his window, I should say, when he looks out his window, he doesn't see what I see because he's not nearly close enough and he's not getting hit by tear gas. 
And then the other hard part is that conservative and uh, liberal in my building, I've talked to each, they both hold to the narrative and don't want to bother in going up against it either. So it's like, I don't know how many people are willing to talk like me, but I'm like going, yeah, the cops did this. Yeah, the protesters did this. And some folks won't say either of those, depending on which side they're on. So um, so I have learned a lot about Antifa, especially I've been threatened at my own home by them, things like that. So when these protests started happening, I kind of had a little bit of edge on some people to where I can identify. I'm like, this is probably a person that will start a riot. This person is not. Things like that. So it's become... Um, an interesting place to live because I can observe all that. On top of it, um, if it weren't quarantine, this would be very chaotic because where I'm situated on the river is right near like these really four famous bridges. It's a nice bridge walk. I usually used to take it early in the morning. I don't do it anymore. Um, but it's also where they'll have like their fairgrounds and where they'll have the pride parade. And then we're also the city of roses. Well, that's a two week thing. So from about the Third week of May through the end of June, I think there's only one open weekend without something going on. Had this not been during quarantine, the chaos would have been that much more because you would have had right in the middle of this downtown district's three blocks away, like a blues concert going on or something. So it's uh, it's a very unique spot to be in. Um, And we're the only... I guess to put it in perspective, we are the only residents that has actually made the news outside of Mayor Wheeler's because his house was being, I think they got it set afire a little bit, but his house is being attacked about five nights back. He's a public building. Yeah. So I, just for the sake of kind of doing a little bit of uh, defining expository work here, um, you know, a lot of the group names that you're using, we hear right on the news and we hear in coverage. And a lot of those names uh, have become kind of like boogeyman names, right? Where it's like the president likes to talk about Antifa as if there's this like anti-federal government militia that is organized and wants to, you know, uh, create an anarchic state or something. And, you know, and I think um, we also hear a lot from more liberal minded people who talk about a group like Proud Boys or um, and, and as if it's a roving band of, you know, white supremacists who you know, are hell bent on violence. And, you know, I, I'm not there, right? Like it's, that's, this is part of the reason why it's so hard to follow and get a real hold on a story like this, because I live in New York city, which has its own political dynamics. And I've been to plenty of protests. And when I hear the president say, Oh, Antifa's in the street, I go to a protest. I'm like, well, this looks mostly like the same kind of people who are at every protest I've ever been to before. They're like college kids or, you know, old liberals from the upper West side or, and they're holding signs and it's very peaceful. And maybe there are a couple of people, People who smash a window, you know, so to me, it sounds like, oh, Antifa is like a boogeyman word. And obviously we haven't had any commuters to New York City who are, you know, necessarily or that I see in the street very much who are like Proud Boy identified. There's nobody driving like a pickup truck down Broadway in Times Square with a Trump flag. So when I hear that kind of alarmist talk, I'm like, ah, you know, like I'm sure these groups exist, but let's not talk about it like, oh, this is a, a national war between Antifa and Proud Boys and whoever wins is going to control the government. You know, that's like 
to me that's hyperbolic and, and crazy, but it sounds like in kind of like a microcosm way, that fight as it's described by pundits and politicians actually is kind of taking place in Portland. So from your perspective, just to help us out, tell me a little bit about your understanding of like what Antifa is, wh- who the Proud Boys are, um, in, you know, in as kind of like fair a way as you can, yes. which I know is hard because you've seen well, a lot of chaos. <laughs> yeah, I think it's easier to do the conservative side first because I do know less than I've observed less. Um, I I think that you've got the whole thing of there's neo-Nazis, there's white supremacists. And from what I've gathered, these guys are maybe one step away from perhaps the white supremacy thing. The, what, from what I've seen, what I've gathered is that this is more like the anti-PC um, American that's tired of these things that they feel are infringing on their old values. And when you find like there are really great documentaries out there by like, uh, sorry for plugging somebody else, but like Vice has covered a couple things documentary wise that um, have shown that like there's a, a big transgender community in Antifa. And actually, I have a lot of as mad, bad as I'm going to talk about Antifa probably during this interview, I have a lot of empathy because these are people that have been bullied their whole lives. And I get that. I draw the line at where they put violence. In the case of the Proud Boys, in the case of Patriot Prayer, um, the first time I've ever seen anybody with a gun here from that side was this recent last week or two. Typically, when they come through, they're not weaponized. There aren't anything. And you can watch videos online. It's absurd. The fights, it's like the the bully or the jock versus the kid that got beat up. It doesn't matter what comes into play. You have people coming at Proud Boys with batons, and the Proud Boys know how to fight. So it's, it becomes this really weird chaos. So I still believe that if you're a conservative group and you're coming into downtown Portland, you're actually pretty much egging people on. And I'll, you know, I'll stand by that talking to a proud boy sitting right across from them. That doesn't really um, bother me to say because there's nothing to gain here. Antifa, um, from at least the videos and things I've seen, um, they're pretty much going to, you know, it's the idea of punch a Nazi. They want to swing first. That's the whole point in a lot of these and it's sort of like anti-fascism deserves that because we are right and that's where it gets a little bit hard because when you have a group mentality that is willing to all bring weapons and come to a fight that way it can turn poorly um and the harder part about this too talking about the groups um the organization is weaker when it comes to the protests like this so like the rallies were a little bit different when they come through. Like the other day, I don't know how the drive through for Patriot Prayer went, but they did drive through. I saw some footage, though, of people climbing on the cars as they were driving through and like knocking things into it and damaging the vehicles. So it's kind of like that type of organization wouldn't be happening six or seven months ago because everything would be more spare. Because with Antifa brought in other anarchists that don't have their values that aren't, let's say, transgender and care about the LGBTQ community. They just care to start a fight and make fires. And so you have the straggler rioters, you have the Antifa folks that have a uh, a mission, 
And then you have the right wing that really didn't come in until late. But I can't I can't say for certain that those groups are white supremacists so much as that there are Americans with pride that don't want to give in to things like, as an example, they probably don't like the idea of pronouns. Now, that's me just throwing out an idea. I don't know if that's true, but the whole new pronoun phenomenon probably would piss off somebody in that group if I said it. Yeah. Well, so, this, this kind of raises an interesting irony. You know, you mentioned uh, Vice earlier, and I agree. I've actually seen a lot of good coverage from Vice. But the origin of the Proud Boys and one of their leaders was a, a, one of the founding members of Vice magazine many, many years ago, who was an anti-PC guy. Like the, the Vice uh, identity many years ago uh, in a very different era, like in the early 2000s, was irreverent. And they did a lot of, I guess, what you would call like, oh, joke racism or joke homophobia. Like, oh, isn't it funny to use these like slurs because we're hipsters and it's hipster racism. And, you know, he left that organization years ago before they you know, made a deal with Viacom and became kind of an empire. But when he did leave, uh, part of what he did was found this group, the Proud Boys, which was initially anti-PC. But, you know, building that magnet seems to attract a lot of people who aren't, quote unquote, like hipster racists. And that's not making any apologies for hipster racists, but there are much more people who are upset for whatever reason in their personal lives. And this like political agenda aligns with them. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think it's fair to say. And and quite frankly, um, I feel like if I said that they were definitely white supremacists and fell into that narrative, I would be basically calling myself that because I'm a huge fan of South Park. I understand the humor. Um, I don't believe that it's public humor. I think this is something where you get your energy out on your own. And this is me with friends of any races that when we hang out, we know each other because we've been around each other since we were five and all that. But no new friends are going to hear that humor from me. They're not going to do that. And I think that these these folks in the Proud Boys and Patriot Prayer, without saying that they're definitely some sort of supremacist or anything, they want to keep the life that they had 20 years ago in which, you know, they could be any old way. And now I think people are more sensitive and wanting to change the world here. And um, I think that's where this big battle is coming from, is that I want to still carry my big stick and say what yeah. I want to say without you telling me otherwise. Yeah. I mean, that political sensibility in, it's, it has echoes of, you know, what we used to call like evangelical voters. I think like maybe 20 years ago, they would say, Hey, there's a big group of people in this country who identify with being Christian and identify with being patriots. And oftentimes part of that identity means like, Hey, I'm old fashioned. I don't support LGBTQ issues. You know, I'm old fashioned, you know, I don't support gay marriage. I'm old fashioned, you know, I don't want to see things change. And then, you know, some of the immigrant stuff seeped in there, but that, that sensibility has changed. Not that evangelicals are not still a big group of people in this country, but that kind of political energy on the right has shifted to a group that doesn't seem to have necessarily like strong traditional Christian or evangelical values, but they're just like, we don't like change. All this new stuff doesn't work for us. Like we are straight white males and we like being straight white males and we don't want to have to apologize for that. 
deal with it. And then it seems confrontational, you know, but it is the same sensibility, which I kind of identify with conservatives historically, which is like, that's the idea of conservatism is like, we don't need this social change. Like we're fine. You know, you guys find your own way to live on the margins, you know, but mainstream life is going to be, you know, white America or, or whatever, you know, traditional quote unquote, traditional America, because there are a lot of non-white conservatives as well. Yeah, no, of course. And um, I'd say that uh, I, I've uh, worked a little bit with the um, LGBTQ community here. Um, and I, I will say that there is that pressure of I don't want to change at all. And then also the pressure of I need change immediately from the other side. And I think the happy medium is what we're sort of missing and it's actually kind of here as a microcosm whenever a conservative group comes through, because um, like just me being a, a male, middle aged, cis, straight man working with some of the LGBTQ people. Um, oh, no, poor victim here, white guy. No, not really. But uh, I will have uh, I will be muted from certain conversations. And I understand it. and I totally respect it. But that's where if you had somebody like one of these folks, they wouldn't stop yelling. And then this side's like, you have to listen to me because I have feelings. So it's really actually kind of reflective of what we're having here, because quite frankly, I don't speak on behalf of my black friends with Black Lives Matter. It's for them to say, I just support my black friends and I love them. I don't live that life. I have been around situations where I've seen uh, people get racially abused just by like being out in front of the bar, having a cigarette with my black friend getting some trouble from a cop, but he only looks at my black friend type thing. It's like, that's yeah. kind of unnecessary. So, yeah. um, well, we it's just also, I, I just very quickly, I think, you know, we had an episode, um, you know, early in the days of the, uh, George Floyd protests about allyship. Like what does allyship look like? Um, and this was a conversation that was facilitated mostly by, um, black contributors to margin call and black contributors to quest on media. Um, and it was good because most of it was just about like, you know, like allyship is kind you know, like you have to do work. It's not enough just to say like, I have good political values, so I don't need to do anything. You know, a lot of the instruction about allyship was like, number one, like just kind of just, be quiet and listen. Do you know what I mean? Like, and, uh, you know, I was a guest on that show and I talked about like the position I find myself in kind of like what you're saying, where I'm like, Oh, I'm a, you know, liberal minded person. And I've done all this advocacy work about criminal justice. And I, I quote unquote understand these issues. So I used to think when something like this would come up, that was my time to say, Oh, well, as a blank person, I understand these issues. And it was a very important lesson for me to be like, no, 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 no. My job is to say, I don't understand this. You know what I mean? Like I need to, I need to learn. And that was what a lot of people said, you know, in the beginning of BLM this year when, you know, people had like, you know, blackout Tuesdays it was like, all right, I'm my, you know, social media is silly, but it's also an important tool for organizing. So I, I did appreciate the idea that people were like, all right, my social media screen is blank. And my only caption is I am listening, you know, and even if it was a trend or a meme, like it was a very important message. And I can see how a lot of people who, think that, you know, Hey, my opinions matter. I'm not, I'm not just going to listen because I'm smart and I know stuff like that could, I, I don't want to say alienate people, but I could see how a big group of people would be like, no, it's not about me being quiet and listening. It's about me saying whatever I want. Cause this is America and don't call me a racist for talking kind of, you know? And it's like, it's, I, I, you know, and I don't, 
agree with that and I don't practice that, but it does help me to understand the motivation of someone who doesn't want to listen kind of, you know what I mean? Because there's, there's less room than there used to be. Um, but there is a question buried in my comment and that, here's my question. Yes. <laughs> I do this a lot, by the way. Welcome yeah. to the show. Sometimes. Hey, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to change it. So give me your good, question. Good, then you'll be able to change it. Yeah. yeah, it is. It's something that you can help me understand better, which is, as I said, I visited Portland, but I don't live there and I've only spent, you know, very brief, charming times there. Um, and that is my understanding is people who are conservative minded, who are coming to these, uh, marches or rallies or protests, um, are from the outside. These are not people who necessarily live in Portland. Um, and I think that that is a little, for me, a little bit of a different dynamic than, you know, if we're talking about Kenosha, for instance, right? Like Kenosha is a, you know, working class, small city near Milwaukee in Wisconsin. Wisconsin is a very, I mean, there's a reason we call it a battleground state, right? You have Democrats, you have Republicans, you have liberals, it's rural, it's urban, you know, and, you know, it looked like the people who were convening on Kenosha kind of, to some extent, reflected what Wisconsin kind of looks like. And I, to me, my basic understanding, and I'm kind of looking for correction here, is for the most part, the people who were out in the street who were liberal protesters, kind of BLM supporters slash Antifa, identified as Antifa, were Portland people and Proud Boys, alt-right, those groups were people from the outside coming to Portland. Is that close to the truth or help me um, me think that through? This is me doing a little bit of guessing, but I can give you, first of all, the demo Um, from percentages of the United States. And I can't remember exactly what they are with minorities versus the rest of, you know, versus white folks throughout the country. But I do know that the the average overall is about 13% African-American. In bigger cities, though, it's got to be pushing a heck of a lot more. Of all things here, we're at 9%, but we still have the same amount percentage-wise of minorities because of Pacific Islanders and people of Asian descent and things like that, very West Coast-based things. So there were probably a lot of folks coming in that um, are black to form here. And this is a, like I said, this is a very efficient protest area. Um, Antifa, yes, you might have people coming far and wide, but there might've been a higher percentage of local Antifa people at the protests than the, uh, than the percentage of black folks there. And I couldn't really tell from where I am, what the numbers are, because I am on the outskirts. So and when I say Antifa, I'm saying writers overall. I don't want to uh, put myself in a position where I'm saying, oh, this group is doing all the bad. No, there are folks that aren't associated with them, too. But the same style, the same gear, the same gas masks, all that stuff. They're usually on the outskirts, and that's where I see from my balcony. Unless people are getting really pushed through, that's not happening. I have gone down there, and I've been amongst the people, but not during the times in which the violence was going on. So I have to deal with like video footage and what I see. And sometimes it seems like there was an overwhelming amount of um, rioters depending on the evening, but that could be because people dispersed. Um, When the protests were fully peaceful, when um, Trump's group left town, so did Antifa. I don't know how they did it. I was out there and I'll tell you right now, that group of peaceful protesters and that group of cops would have... (laughs) 
never fell into a fight over 30 days in that position. The cops didn't even have riot gear on. It was impressive. It was a kumbaya moment where you have people with, you know, um, Bob Marley or Tupac or whatever shirts on with the fists raised on them right next to two cops. They're just chilling out with like the thinnest amount of things on them. It was very, very bizarre. So um, it kind of going off on a little tangent there, it's kind of interesting to see that side of it, that you do have people that are immigrating in, or I like to call them parasite tourists, but they're the rioters that have absolutely no care for anybody in the world and are just there. They're coming in too. All of the white groups, (laughs) I shouldn't say all the white groups, because Antifa is primarily white, but all of the conservative groups that come through are pretty much from other parts of Oregon. Oregon actually has a great amount of Republicans out in the woods where you're doing more of the woodsy type stuff. This whole state's voter dynamic is really based on two big cities. And um, I'm pretty sure like Eugene and Portland alone could get any Democrat elected uh, for governor or whatever. And so this state is defined by its Democrats, but there are a ton of Republicans just out in the woods doing, I don't know, logging jobs or whatever. So uh, 100% right on Proud Boys coming through. They're not normally hanging around. They do like to come through outside of times like these. Like they might come through two or three times a year and the Antifa will meet them downtown. But overall, um, we have a lot of people that are visiting. We have a lot of people in tents out front right now. I could walk down and talk to folks in tents. They're just living here for a while. Yeah. And those well, are all protesters. Yeah. This is a good question about geography, too, because I think we've been having kind of red state, blue state conversations for so long, you know, since 2000, basically, where we are defining uh, political identities of regions based on, um, you know, state boundaries, which aren't really reflective of those states in you know, in the in the interior. And I think California is a great example. I grew up in California in San Francisco. Like if there's another bubble after Portland, you know what I mean? Like it's San Francisco and Berkeley, you know, um, and, I'll, and I, I'd put Oakland in there. And so we feel very comfortable. We think, hey, what a liberal, progressive place. Um, and then we forget California is a huge state um, with a lot of rural areas, a ton of farming in the Central Valley. Um a ton of people, you know, if you look at a place like Orange County in Southern California, which is a very Republican place, you know, because you have a lot of wealthy people who don't want to pay their taxes. And that's where Republicans come from. You know, San um, Diego has some of that. Yeah, too. Yeah. San Diego has it too. Yeah. get out to La Jolla, you know, so we always have reminders of that. For instance, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger is elected governor, you know, and, you know, I don't want to whatever. I don't want to bag on Arnold Schwarzenegger. But like if you live in San Francisco, you might be a little surprised that that many people wanted a Republican governor. Pete Wilson was another Republican governor. He was anti immigrant immigrant, um, much more conservative, I would say, than Schwarzenegger. Lest us, you know, lest we forget Ronald Reagan himself, yes, yeah. the, the, the demigod of, you know, the Republican Party was the governor of California. So there's so much like um, political nuance in in states, even out west or places that we think of as blue states that we forget. And, you know, I live in New York now. Right. So I'm in Manhattan. I'm in yet another bubble. But, you know, I do political advocacy work. I do criminal justice reform work. And anytime we try to pass something in Albany, we have to meet with people who represent, you know, rural areas in the north where people are much more conservative. And even here in New York City, Staten Island voted for Donald Trump for president. 
You know, like we, we it's like, so we have to think of those sensibilities. You think, oh yeah, New York City is a bubble. It's like, well, even a bubble is not a bubble. And I think it's a good reminder that a place like Oregon, if you, if you only know Portland from Fred Armisen's TV show, you think, oh yeah, you know, they're just a bunch of liberal, you know, it's just like, uh, it's Berkeley in the woods, Berkeley in the Northwest kind of, and there's a lot more going on. And I, I think that's an important reminder because if you really think about the democratic process, no matter how you feel about conservatives or Republicans or whatever, like they are people with a political voice and people with a political voice because it's America can be heard. So we shouldn't be so aghast or shocked when, you know, a liberal bubble is pierced by, uh, you know, Republican or conservative sensibility. Yeah. And I, I think that's also a little bit about uh, what, why the surprise is so big last election and, and very well could be a little bit like this election, which is why I'm leaving town is that, um, there are a lot of bubble people on both sides of the political spectrum where they don't see what other people see. So there might be a lot of surprise voters coming from different places. Um, the nice thing for me, uh, kind of being politically in the middle, is that I've been in states where I know where the votes are going. So if I really feel good about it, I can throw something a third party's way just because I do want to see some change yeah. in how things go. Yeah. Um, we got well into politics. And the funny part was I did get to establish everything. I never got to get to the tear gas thing. So you well, I was gonna say, my next question was, well, yeah, after we promised not to have a political conversation, here we are. And I haven't even heard about how your life has been completely. Yeah, yeah, no, so, um, well, yeah, I mean, give us a sense of what is it that you've already described proximity to us. I think yes. people even on the outside who understand this know that most of these protests are focused around the federal building that's there and the police station that's nearby. Um, so, you know, as a person who is right on that boundary on that border who looks out the window and sees this what does it feel like what are the what is the displacement what does the chaos feel like to be inside your home across yeah. the street from where this is happening just yeah. in terms of your everyday life yeah um well going back to uh, the email i left you yesterday um and to give you a little idea i sit um the, the the river is behind me, so I'm facing out west. We have the Willamette River right there. Um, it's a, a beautiful river going through the city. It splits it right in two. There's four quadrants, and I'm on the southwest quadrant near the downtown area. It's like a perfect little square. And uh, where I am, just as an idea, is that when the sun comes around, it bounces off this big white building, and it cooks my place. And normally during the summer... I'd have the windows open and I would get a couple of fans going on, one in my kitchen and one near my bathroom. And I'd have this perfect little crosswind going through and it made my life a lot easier because by about two in the afternoon, um, I could probably boil some water here by just putting it next to the window. It just cooks and that goes well until like eight o'clock at night. So without the crosswind, life sucks. Well, this year, fourth day in on, um, when I start having the windows open all the time, um, we get hit by tear gas, uh, wind taking it. And if you don't know much about, we have, I believe it's CS gas here. Uh, if you don't know much about tear gases, it's one of those things where when it shoots up high, it comes down on folks. And it's actually a dust rather than a gas. Now, that means that anything is like cat dander or other types of residue. So if the wind catches it, and takes it down the street, which is 
how I'm assuming this happened, it started getting through our windows and things. And so um, I had to actually throw out my bedding. Wow. <laughs> it's very bizarre. Wow. But um, that was the, the first time I hit it was four days in. I'm going, well, what do I do about this? Because I had been awake most of the night because if you don't know what a flashbang is, a flashbang is just small, um, or at least I'm assuming a small uh, projectile that the police will use for crowd control that flashes very big and also has that percussive element of a bang, thus the name. Um, so there's a little bit of blinding and there's a little bit of ear or hearing loss, at least from what I can tell. I've never been in the middle of that. So you're getting a shotgun sound outside your window, even when it's closed in the middle of the night, you're going to wake up to it. And uh, the gas can canisters make a much different sound. So if I wake up to that, they're a little bit softer. I would be like, okay, I should probably prepare and make sure the windows are closed. Well, I couldn't do that anymore after all the sleep deprivation because I could fall asleep right now for two hours with my window open something could break out and then suddenly now I have a whole new round of tear gas in here totally free. So, um, I did, how disruptive is that tear gas? Like if it seeps into your apartment, what is it? Are you sneezing? Are your eyes burning and watering? Well, like what does that feel like? Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> I'm glad you asked that. Um, the only time I had any eyes watering, any, um, I had this sharp, uh, feeling down my throat when this happened, but I was out there and I saw one of the fights, incited on my street just probably about four cars away and i'm about four floors up um and that was the night where we had tear gas and i was actually taking footage and um i i kind of had the smell of it and this is well before i ever got in my apartment and so i went right inside so i had none of the swelling or none of that but i i realized like okay now i know what that's like but I don't know what that's truly like, you know? And so when it comes into your home, it's not necessarily a pain uh, as far as getting swollen eyes or anything. It's all about the smell. It's um, an acrid orange and vinegar style smell and it sticks if you get it hit long enough. I went away for a few days to get away from everything, opening my door for the first time, and having that smell come out, it's just like things were settled in. So, you know, you do all your laundry immediately. You get all that stuff out. The thing that I'm not sure of is how much of this dust am I breathing? Because, you know, there are some things you just got to free for breeze. You got no other option. You can't get rid of this. And uh, quite frankly, I'm not going to change my whole house until I know this is done. Um, it, it, it's just it's a very bizarre thing. But um, the time that it got me that first time around uh, when I had my windows open, um, it pretty much filled the room and I woke up from a sleep. Of course, I was dreaming of something that smelled bad and I wake up from it. And it is, it's impossible. Uh, the part after it's almost like a Mr. Bean comedy thing. Uh, I should have immediately gone up and, and taken a shower. What I basically did was I changed my bedding and, and got back to sleep because I was getting sleep. You got to take the sleep when you can get it. Um, the next day, I decided to go around and smell some things. So I was like smelling the pillows on my couch in the other room because the window was open there too. And it's all this stuff. And things were changing around where I was like, wait, hold on a second. I checked that earlier and it was smelling bad. And now it's not. It took me about two or three days to realize it was my hair. And it was this crazy because it was much longer then. Uh, but because I couldn't go out and get a haircut, <laughs> and on top, because of quarantine, and on top of the fact that, like, 
um, uh, the the smell of this stuff was so pervasive that you can't really tell sometimes. So I was smelling myself and going crazy over it, like I don't know, like a character with OCD. And so I, it took me about six showers to get all the smell out of my hair, and then I just had a friend help me and, and cut it a little bit. But it was this really nice mess of because it was quarantine because it was summer, because, you know, they were nearby, because like the last couple of nights, not a problem at all. They're on the east side attacking another precinct. But I know I can't close my windows no matter what, because if, if I sleep through it, I'm done. It's just like, that's my life. Sleep deprivation has definitely shaken things up to where I don't know what I can do. And that's why it's perfect right now. Like the sun uh, isn't even hitting me yet. I'm looking right out at everything and it's like, I'm, I'm good. I've got a couple hours before I really start getting hit hard by everything. Wow. Wow. Uh, I am curious, you know, before we let you go about what you said at the top of the show, which was you're planning to leave Portland and you're planning to do it right around the time of the election in early November. Can you tell me a little bit about what informed that decision? You know, like, were you thinking maybe I'll leave Portland anyway, even before all this happened? Or is this a decision you made in the midst of this, that it was so disruptive to your lifestyle and kind of, I would imagine pretty traumatic to witness day after day. I don't want to put that word trauma on you, but like it can't can't be easy at the very least it's disruptive. Um, What, what informed that decision? And does this mean you're leaving Portland for good? Or are you just hoping things get back back to normal after the election? A few different things that you're covering there. Um, uh, First off um, we did have a, a long peaceful phase here which made me feel better about things. And about a day before I was going to really like do a thorough cleaning of my place, um, that's when the Proud Boys came in and Antifa came in and we had been having such nice rallies. In fact, I was down at the rally earlier that day. And as I was walking back, I saw somebody with a paintball gun coming in. I'm like going, oh no, it's back. It's This is all over. And so I don't know when this ends, when I said I'm leaving in November, I, I'm leaving for a week just to stay away from here. I just don't want to be near it. Um, as I said before, briefly, but not I didn't go into detail, uh, I was threatened at my door at one point. Uh, uh, a girl that was younger than the T-shirt I was wearing uh, said to me that I was a Nazi. And I like, tried to walk into my place. I didn't say anything back because she had a backpack on and you don't want to see what's in uh, a rioter's backpack. You just don't know what anybody's holding, but it's really weird to walk into your own home wearing a public enemy shirt of all things and have someone call you a Nazi. <laughs> so it's like, um, because of the Antifa rallies, because I have more stories that are like that when no one's around and there's no one to fight. Um, I'm like, you know what? It's probably time for me to go. I've been in this apartment building for about three years. I won't be leaving the area. Um, I don't feel like going through all the troubles, uh, of like getting new doctors and everything. So I'm just going to go about a city or two away because a lot of the joy of this spot because of quarantine alone, uh, you know, became pretty sucky. I like being near the river. I like being able to walk to uh, some great concert venues and all that stuff. Well, all of that went away once we got shut in. So this might've been a decision I made 
anyway. But, you know, November, I'm disappearing for a week. December, my lease is done at the end of the month. And I'll probably go month to month until I can move out. But um, I, I think I can do without, you know, you know, 12 to 15 Antifa rallies right next door uh, a year um, from here on out, just because it's just a bad taste in my mouth seeing what's what's happened here. Um, uh, a, a quick story, just as a side note, because we were really supposed to be covering what it's like living right now. And this is the eye opener, uh, opener as far as writers, they're stragglers that came from somewhere else. I won't put this on Antifa because I feel like they do have a mission. Uh, I go to a convenience store about two blocks away. It's right around the corner from the federal building. When the protests were going on hard and they turned into riots, our entire police force was down there. This is well before Trump sent its people in. When I talked to the um, cashiers at that um, convenience store, it like horrified me because there were these riot people that were in there like smoking cigarettes and stealing stuff left and right. One kicked in the window, which from the outside had wood over it because everything is wooded up around here. I mean, you won't believe the Apple store, nine foot tall planks. And it just was so bothersome to me because here it is. This is my hometown and these good people are being attacked in their business. And on top of it, the worst part, and this is why I don't think it was totally Antifa, is that there were racial slurs being thrown around because they were all Indians descent. So it's like a very difficult thing to see people that like, okay, they're not my friends, but I see them like uh, when I go in for a coffee, maybe three times a week see them going through this and also for them to lose me as a customer, because quite frankly, it didn't feel safe to go down there during the daytime. Um, there are a lot of people that were there all night. So they're sleeping there too. And it's not homeless. It is visitors with, you know, bad intentions. So um, the overall feel of this area, it's lost a lot of its charm, but quite frankly, I'm 20 blocks away from, like an area called Slab City that still looks wonderful and peaceful. And my buddy that lives there thinks I'm crazy from the stories I'm telling him. So, you know, that's that's the life here right now. And so I, I think I'll go probably a city away and see how it goes. Because I do love it here. There's a lot of great hikes. There's a lot of great things. But, you know, if this quarantine goes for a really long time, it doesn't really matter where I'm laying my head. And... um I think that if Trump's elected, that perhaps I might be moving out during the quiet times during the day, because at nighttime, there might be fights every night going well into December. You know, I don't know. It's uh, it's it's a it's a difficult decision to make. But um, I OK, actually, let me I'll put it in one more perspective. I hope I'm not going on too long. No, um, no, please I, do. Uh, I went in for a covid test. Um I had uh, went away to a, um, a hotel on the coast and I spent all three days instead of going out to the beach or doing things like that to get away, just getting normal sleep and um, up and down and feeling terrible and terrible throat. But I didn't have a temperature or anything like that. So I just went into the emergency room when I got back and said, hey, listen, you know, I I think, you know, I might have it. And they said, you know, you don't know the temperature, but like the first doctor that saw me, they're like, yeah, 
you probably do. <laughs> That's how bad I look. I'm like, okay, cool. Don't take the COVID test unless you have to. That is just, oh, right up the nose. It's terrible. Oh, yeah. I've had it. It's not pleasant. <laughs> it's not pleasant at all. Well, anyway, uh, another doctor comes in afterwards and he's talking to me. He's like, I just wanted to talk to you about your chart. There's a couple of things that are off here. And he goes, and, and he realizes that, like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm like right near where the protests are. And I've got, tear gas residue and I've got, you know, sleep deprivation. It's strange because now percussive sounds kind of affect me differently. And he goes, this is really weird, but we've had no one like you at all. We'll get somebody who's gotten a tear canister in the head and like been right in it. But we haven't had anybody who's like sleeping around it every night in little doses or anything like that. So I was prescribed the normal things, but for, for them, I was around patient zero. And that made me realize I'm like at my height in my building and the amount of people we have, this is a really weird patient zero thing to be. And, um, going into a little bit of the politics of my building, there was two different groups. It was almost like a civil war here where people are, are wanting to sue the apartment company because it's the national and others want to sue the police. And you can tell their politics based on that too, that the Democrats are like, we want to sue the police because they're, they should be defunded. And the Republicans are going the way of this we deserve this. We pay our good money. We should have more protection. This shouldn't happen. I look at it as an act of God. And so that's why I'm bringing it up right now. When I was talking to the doctors, if this is something where like 20 years from now, it's like mesothelioma. I highly doubt that where it's like, it gets me. It gets me. This is where I live. This is what, this is my bad luck. I don't even want to be part of these two different groups. They both went on different news services here, like two different local stations fighting over things. I'm like going, you know, we just have bad luck. In some ways it was, it was good luck because I got to see some interesting things here and try to inform people to be better. I have friends that think that Antifa is a myth. And then I show them footage and they go, well, that that's not an evil. I'm like, believe you me. Like, Please trust your friend's eyes. I've been around it. Their rallies are official. Watch a couple docs. Like, do the best I can because I think that, um, you know, whatever I observe here, it's going to help me talk about for the rest of my life anyway. This is just an interesting and engaging subject. And um, I don't feel like a victim here at all or anything. I just have bad luck. The real victims are the good people that are downstairs that are being good and then affected by the police or the rioters and getting hurt. It really sucks at night to hear that. Every once in a while, you'll hear some people scream and you're like, oh, I don't have it that bad at all. Uh, I, you know, and so uh, I keep it in perspective. Bad luck, that's it. But yes, as far as like quarantine on top of this, I, I, I don't wish it upon anyone. And um you know, but it is what it is. Yeah. So. I think that's a very, very measured, uh, wise and mature response to what is essentially the reality of your, you know, life being upended by uh, political chaos. So, uh, you know, I, I, you know I, I salute and acknowledge you for being able to keep Thank things you. in perspective and saying like, hey, I'm learning a lot here. I'm witnessing history. This will inform my life experience. Sometimes you just have bad luck. You know, I, yeah. <laughs> no. uh, yeah. 
I didn't even give you one anecdote of what I've seen as far as like fight story. I don't know if you want any of that. Uh, sure. I'll take a fight story. Um, this was one where I was, I like to say I was vindicated or whatever, but I shouldn't take any joy in it. It was around day four or so. It was really, really early on. And um, they were all at the square I was talking about. Um, they, as in Black Lives Matter speakers doing that whole thing. And it was still official enough that I believe they had a permit and stuff. The police were on standby because they had already had like a mini fight in one of the first three days. It wasn't anything big yet or anything. And um, so I'm standing on my balcony. I'm listening to speeches and the police start pushing people out and they're using the bullhorn and you've got this group of folks. And I I guess you could best call them tourists, but they're protesters. They're there as support, but they're not protester protesters. You know, they're not really, really into it. So you have a small group of the real hardcore every single day um, speaking into the mic protesters. And then all these folks that like from teenage kids to even people that like had young kids that were walking away back to the police line, all following orders. It was exactly the opposite of what happens with the Proud Boys or, you know, the whole groups. And, um, I'm watching and one group of people climbs up on the truck across the street and they're bouncing up and down on it. And they're doing this. I'm like, okay, this is a bad start. The cops are half a block from them in a straight line. But anybody that knows like football or chess or any of that, you know, that in this case, you don't break your line because you're probably talking about 200 people versus 20. That's why they use gas canisters. So I'm watching this sort of evolve where the cops aren't going to stop the people from ruining this truck. Again, act of God thing. What are you going to do? Right? Yeah. Out of the corner of my eye, I see someone run up and it looks like a brick. I don't want to make it official, but it looks like a brick. And the ping sound off the helmet sounded like a brick. This guy comes running in, throws the brick into uh, one of the uh, riot cops' heads, bounces off that helmet. The guy turns to turn like he's on a dime, like an NBA basketball player that just broke ankles but he slips and rolls right into the cop next to the guy who got hit so he starts getting beaten down and two of uh the other writers friends rush in and they start getting in there and i'm looking at this whole thing and i'm going well no wonder why we have so many problems here the police might start with the brutality 99 percent of the time i don't know but at that moment you have a whole group of people with their backs turned that have no idea what's going on. Then they turn around and they see someone who's getting beat the crap out of without any idea as to why. And luckily it was a group of people that were basically tourists because they just ran the other way. Like, forget this. I'm not a part of it. Had it been what was normal 20 days later, I would have had an all out brawl there. It would have been a totally different thing. But you could see where the chaos comes from. That might have even been planned. I don't know where these guys are like, we're going to get a hit on the cops and run away. Why don't you dance on the truck to distract them? I don't I have no idea. But it was a perfect little microcosm of how um, months later the Black Lives Matter movement and the NAACP would declare that their right or their rights, their protests had been co-opted by riot groups. And I could have told them that on day four. It was just one of those things when like there are even if it's one percent of the time, they're causing more harm to the good protesters. And yeah. having that observation and having people close the door on me for a long time upon saying it really shows how the narrative goes because like 
I would say that my Facebook is probably 95% Democrats. And most every single one of them didn't want to believe that story until I put out the uh, speech from the NAACP leader who came in. And um, I mean, there are heroic stories of Black Lives Matter protesters stepping up to the rioters. I don't know why you would do it because they have weapons. Uh, They're insane to me. And I love hearing the stories because it means that there's a lot of pride there. But um, it's definitely been a thing where the infighting um, has hurt the community overall because of the convenience store, of people living like me, of, oh, you know, we had a 200-year-old elk statue that had to be torn down because people were constantly using it for different unsafe things for the riots. And it's like, that one's not really necessary. I totally understand if we had, like, a Confederate statue getting torn down. That's great. We had a a founder statue that could be considered a a racial thing. But it's just one of those things where it's like walking through my downtown. It's not quite the same. And so had we been able to catch on to those problems earlier, my life would have been better. The community's life would have been better. And I think Black Lives Matter would have gained a lot because I think their voices would have been heard better. It became a garbled mess. So yeah. that's a there's a particular irony there that I think mirrors our early earlier conversation about white allyship and like the importance of letting kind of like black voices lead this movement and black organizations lead a movement about police brutality. Um, because I can see, you know, you mentioned earlier, most of the people that you've seen who identify as Antifa are, you know, mostly white. Is that correct? Like, fair yeah. To say. yeah. So the idea that, you know, Portland, um, the black residents of Portland and of the surrounding area uh, wanted to have a movement. They wanted to have like a safe and sanctioned protest movement that was peaceful. And it sounds like, you know, I, I don't know if I'm using the right word, but it sounds like it's been co-opted by white people who have a different political agenda and it has since descended into chaos. And we're not having the same conversation about defunding the police or about black lives. And that there is like a very poignant irony there again, without pointing fingers and saying these people are bad or those, it's just like just the optics of it. The idea that like, you know, black protesters are getting a permit, having speeches, you know, probably planning to testify in front of city council. And then, you know, white protesters are violent and, you know, like yeah. causing chaos. Like that's that's telling. Yeah, and, and a gr- another great example. And uh, there's uh, don't shoot PDX and don't shoot. Obviously, coming from um, oh shoot, who was that guy? It was a hands up thing. But don't shoot PDX is a a, a group that is independent, but I'm pretty sure also part of Black Lives Matter here. And they were really fond of Wall of Moms that came down here and were doing their wall of moms thing. And if you follow the Instagram, you can look it up for don't shoot PDX. You will see the moment in which don't shoot PDX was like, we have to get rid of wall of moms. And I remember during the time that, that that was prominent, the airways were being owned by all these white mothers that were there but it became a thing where it's this is a photo op and then we're running off as soon as the violence starts and no one discusses that. And I pr- actually that would be one where I might get my butt kicked for it, but I'll stand by it. It was a ridiculous thing because this is about black voices. This is not about a mom saying, look at how woke I am. 
And uh, yeah, so there uh, there was plenty of really infuriating videos because these folks were speaking for people that had been out there. I mean, it'd been maybe 30 days in before the wall of moms even came into play. So this was all a big greedy thing. They wanted their attention. So they started doing some things, I think, around the government and petitioning things. And that's when Don't Shoot dropped them. But I'm pretty sure they were just photo ops and gone. And it's a nice photo op. It's it's nice to show that support or whatever. But the fact is, if you're gumming up what's supposed to be happening, I say get rid of the gunk. You get rid of writers. You get rid of these people with other ideas that, you know, want attention. And you get down to the thick of it. Because I'll tell you, the first time I finally got to go to a Black Lives Matter rally was two days after Trump had removed everybody. And the stories were heartbreaking. It was really hard to hear all these folks talk about these things. And in fact, this one woman was talking about um, a business uh, in town, big business, uh, that was uh, mistreating her. Um, and she felt like it was because of race. And uh, uh, she wasn't, I think, a full time, like I think she was an outside consultant and the hours were getting less and less, which is also quarantine. But that's that's beside the point or whatever. Uh, the fact uh, The fact is she was talking about all that tough stuff. And the same company announced that they were going to dump a whole bunch of people locally, but also announced that they were putting in millions upon millions of dollars into Black Lives Matter. So it was like a snake eating its own tail. Here we are fighting for these uh, folks to have better lives and then taking it away. So here's some money. Here's this. It's like it's become a very, very weird, bad situation for uh, black people in my community because they're losing when trying to win. And they've had some wins. There has been some defunding. There have been some people that have stepped down from the jobs that might be nefarious. I don't know. But it's definitely one of those things where there is still a lot of infighting, even when you take away those outside factors, because, you know, we still have to make a living during this time. And so it's definitely, I mean, I just put in a lot of heavy stuff there from both sides. I really probably should have leaned back a little bit, but um, it's, it's a little bit unnerving because uh, when someone – I mean we're talking about folks being up there for like 30 minutes speaking. You become part of their lives. You really learn who they are. Uh, and you know, we had a good peaceful time for a short while and then it was gone. So. Yeah. I mean I'm, I'm personally glad that you delved into a little bit of the nuance there because I think it illustrates why it's so difficult to have a conversation about these issues because it exists on so many levels about disruptive to people's lives. But also some people are out there protesting in a very like righteous way. But if you say something bad about this group, it might alienate that group. And if you say something good about this group, it's going to alienate another group. And those are the kind of distinctions that I don't hear very often. So so I do appreciate you kind of making that point about like, here's a person who feels like they were discriminated against, you know, by a company that claims to support a group of people that gets discriminated against. And yes. like there's there's hypocrisy there. And it's like that doesn't mean that it's not good to give money to Black Lives Matter, but it also means like put your money where your mouth is. And, uh, you know, like that kind of nuance, again, is why it's hard to have these conversations. But I think that I mean, I think, a, you know what? And, and you know what? To make it basic, there's no more important time probably to give to Black Lives Matter than now in its whole history. But at the same time, there is no more important time to take care of your employees than now. 
given the options that are out there. Uh, you know, it's just like this is the absolute worst time for someone random to have their business burned down. You know, it's like, yeah, I get the fight, but the fact is the fight's against the government. And and so th- there are a lot of things that are going on where like this is the very worst time to do this. And this is the very best time to do this. And sometimes the decisions aren't being made. So, yes, it was nice for that big business to take care of uh, uh, minorities and all that. But it's really a shame because that money could have gone to those people keeping jobs and being able to have their living. So, so it's, um, it's definitely uh, – wait. It's definitely weird because I, I've had to juggle a lot of political emotions – because, and I've had to be safe too, because there are way too many people. I, I know too many people that have canceled each other just over, you know, saying one good thing or one bad thing about Trump that depending on which side you're on, you're not my friend anymore type thing. And I just, I want to tell the truth. I want to be safe. And uh, I'll tell you right now is that I stand by no matter what, that this could have been peaceful the whole time if Black Lives Matter and the police had been one-on-one in the situation. Um, as brutal as the police got once riots started, I got to see that those two groups in harmony for a long period of time. And so that's why I feel like from my observations, I really feel like it was outside influence that caused all of this because the protests here outside of when it's Antifa and like Proud Boys clashing, they're all really wonderful. Like any woman's march or anything like that, there's no trouble. You know, I've been through plenty of protests in San Francisco and I'll tell you there was a lot more trouble down there. And uh and so it's you know, I don't know. It's a very tough situation to be in because in some ways I want to be down there and supportive, but how can you put yourself in danger unless you're really, really into it? So I just keep yeah. my home. Yeah. And I think that's the casualty is that there are a lot of level-headed people who would want to support most of the aspects of this movement who are just kind of scared off, uh, understandably, by what has become a chaotic and violent situation. <laughs> you know, so people aren't. And if you want to talk about First Amendment rights, like in a lot of ways, the violence and chaos is infringing on the, the First Amendment rights of people who want to just get out in the street and hold a sign, you know, like, <laughs> which is a very reasonable expectation for an American with a political. Yeah. And well, and I'll, I'll tell you that um, I'm on the avenue where both there was a um, attempted murder by a rioter and then there was a shooting the night that ended in murder. And um, the, the, the gun, the, the one with the gun was six blocks down. The one was with the knife was just a block away. And it's that kind of random chaos to where if I can wear a public enemy and be walking into my own home and being called a Nazi, how can I put myself out there when I see people with backpacks? I mean, and all these different things that are just totally nefarious. They're all able to wear masks as everybody's wearing a mask right now. But um, uh, I'm sure a lot of people have seen the footage of the shooting, but there is footage of this knifing. It was uh, a conservative journalist walking around. One of the rioters followed him. Um, and then he turned around and put his arm around him to say something to him. And that's when the rioters stabbed him up. 
And it was just one of those things where it didn't really get out there that much, but it bothers me because that's the random chaos. When you have folks that have weapons that you don't know what's on them and you it's high emotions and it's, you know, like, I don't know if that man had any idea he'd ever stab anybody in his life. He just came down there because he was part of the riot. He's an anarchist or whatever. Um, but I do know that that should be happening and that's in the chaos and I don't want to be there for it. Um, the irony of that one, it was it actually was a, a black conservative journalist, which is really weird. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, an anarchist in a black rally is stabbing yeah. a black journalist and, you know, who's a conservative, conservative yeah. and his yeah. life matters. I'm sorry. That was a bad joke, but luckily he survived and everything was fine. But that's a very weird, chaotic situation to be in, especially given like, uh, they're not me. I think I probably should have at some point, there were people in my building on the first floor with water to help flush people's eyes out when they went by. I mean, we're not anti these groups or anything. We want to be helpful, but it kind of sucks when you have that at your door. Uh, and the anonymity sucks too. It's just, you just don't know how to trust. So um, I would say that if you're in an area, this is me giving my advice just from living right on top of it. If you're in an area where protests are turning the riots or anything, um, it's just, it's not worth your time. Send money from home because uh, the, the chaos that's here, even though it was only one stabbing, one shooting, that's one more than we needed altogether in this whole time. And um, I think the more people, the more problems, the more people to run into, the more this, the more that. Yeah. So, you know, if, if you know it's a peaceful protest, yeah. like I went out to mine, great. But I mean, we had a guy catch fire two nights ago. Molotov cocktail went wrong. <laughs> it's just like watching that footage of me going, oh, dude, what's going on? Like, you got to know how to handle your Molotov cocktail. You can't be caught on fire. <laughs> I don't know. I should be laughing at it, but it's just absurd that um, people are just coming for a fight. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's a reasonable response because it is one of those situations where it's like, if you don't laugh, you're going to cry. You know, like the thing, thing, things have reached a point where, you know, people are setting themselves on fire with on accident with their Molotov cocktails. There's a stabbing and a shooting a block away from you. I mean, that is that's, you know, that is chaotic. No matter what your political opinions are, even if you have no political opinions, it is incredibly distressing. Uh, and, and perhaps the most distressing thing to me personally, as a you know defender of the First Amendment, is that there is no room for peaceful protesters here who would just like to say, you know, their piece. Um, but uh, I do want to thank you, Scott, because this is this has been a, a, a kind of, I think, exactly the conversation I was hoping for, which is really much more about learning, like what is happening on the ground, helping us and our listeners to get a better sense of what people are contending with without kind of getting in the lost, getting lost in the weeds of who's right or who's wrong, because it's pretty obvious, you know, when you, you know, for example, the, the, the journalist who was stabbed, you know, like the optics are so bizarre where you have like a white, you know, anarchist stabbing a black conservative journalist. It's like that, that alone, that moment alone gives you a sense of how far things have gotten away from what this was supposed to be about. 
you know, and so I, I just want to thank you, Scott, uh, for being here and being able to kind of like maintain that laser focus, which it, to be honest, we at Margin Call are not known for having a laser focus. So <laughs> big credit to you because you basically kept me on task too. But this was a really, really informative conversation for me and, and I think for our listeners. So I just want to thank you. I'm looking at the time. I don't know how much laser focus we had, man. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> if I can say one thing to put it all in a microcosm uh, of my perspective. So uh, I, when I had the tear gas stuff happen to me with my hair and all that, I'm like, okay, how do you clear this out? So I looked up, how do you clean tear gas? And the first, um, article that came up from Google was something on the lines of, so you're planning to get tear gassed. Yeah. And it was like, <laughs> I opened up the page and it shows you how to prep it and how to clean up afterwards. I'm like, why is anybody planning to get tear gassed? And that's really where I'm coming from is we don't need this it can come from another way and um that's not because i'm living in it so uh yeah. i think that's well my best perspective but thank you so much for having me and um i'm sorry we went so long that's probably yeah. my point. i'm glad i'm glad there was no there was in my mind there was absolutely no dead time everything that that we were talking about i feel like needed to be needed to be addressed so i appreciate it again a very very informative conversation thank you thank you uh scott and Thank you, as always, to our producer, Eming, who keeps us on task and is very patient with any tangents. I didn't do shit this episode. What are you talking about? I just sat here. <laughs> well, you know, we're still going to sound you good. Do and, you do know, more. Yeah. Do, do more, Eming. <laughs> See? Oh, no, I can't make that joke now. See? I tried to say thank you, and then I made a joke, and now this is it. I got to walk a fine line. Um, but, but, yes, thank you uh, to Eming for orchestrating everything and helping us to sound so good as always always um and of course thanks as always to our listeners until next time quest on everybody this episode of quest on media's margin call was produced in richmond california